Hi.NET Rocks fans. Before we get started, I'd like to mention Rob Eisenberg's awesome Durandal project, an open-source JavaScript library for creating apps with elegant, clean code on any platform. And guess what? He's got a Kickstarter project with only a few days left to reach the goal. Support open source, get cool rewards, and build the future web. Join Richard and me in backing the Durandal Kickstarter at tinyurl.com slash durandal14. That's D-U-R-A-N-D-A-L 14. And hurry, the deadline is January 10th. .NET Rocks episode 940 with guest Justin Searles. Recorded live Monday, December 16th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Houston, it's .NET Rocks! Yeah! Now that's a crowd. There you go. They're burning down the university. They are. We're at Rice University. Yeah. Wow, this is the way that we should... we, we Go to the moon speech. I know. It's great. Yeah, JFK did his famous uh, We Gotta Go to the Moon Before the Decade is Out speech right here. Um, Richard and I are at the end of the second leg of the .NET Rocks road trip, and it's great to be here in Houston. We had some good barbecue, did we not? Yeah! And pie! And pie! Love the pecan pie. Pecan pie! Yeah. Pecan? Pecan. Pecan? No, pecan. 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 Yeah, because pecans are what truckers use. That's right. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) All right, uh, let's do what we normally do right about now and roll the music for a segment we call Better Know a Framework. All right, buddy, what do you got? Uh, I found a great wiki today. It's called Your Language Sucks. <laughs> really? Yeah. Is yes. that the URL? Well, it's uh, wiki.theory.org slash your language sucks. Or you can go to tinyurl.com, your lang sucks. And it's basically your language sucks because, and all of the reasons why your language sucks. So JavaScript sucks. True. Justin. Accurate statement. Just not, you know, it's only because you're the only guy up here, you're representing that language. Because poor design. Every script is executed in a single global namespace that is accessible in browsers with the window object. Camel case sucks, automatic type conversion between strings, blah, blah, blah. It goes on. Bad features, yada, yada. Pages and pages of why JavaScript sucks, all right? (laughs) Um, You know, and so let me scroll back up to the top, and I'll just say PHP, Perl, Python, Ruby, Flex Action Script. Scripting languages in general, C, C++, Objective-C, Java, Backbase, XML, XSLT, and XPath, and CSS. And then we get to C-sharp. C-sharp sucks because 
And, you know, there are pages and pages, pages and pages. pages. <laughs> actually, no, it. actually, there's only a couple of things. Manual memory management. Oh, no, that's C. Ha <laughs> ha, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, C sharp sucks because uh, this section is only a stub. You can contribute by subscribing and expanding. Sorted list uses key value pairs. There is no standard .NET collection for a list that keeps its items in sort order. Okay. Okay. Yeah, all right. But it's only one page. Changing a collection invalidates all iteration operations in every thread. Yes, that's true. Yep. Yeah. Parameters are not supported for most properties, only indexers, even though this is possible in Visual Basic.net. Most of the class libraries for methods using the .NET interpretation of the language are patented by Microsoft, not open source. Uh, well, that's that may be changing. We'll see. And uh, arrays are not type safe. And, you know, pretty much that's it. So, not you know, it's a small list of complaints. So I thought that was pretty good. That's cool. But your language sucks. Yeah. Just Google your language sucks. You'll, You'll find it. it. Google Bing it. There it is. Google Bing. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 919, and that is the one we did at DevReach, and it was the JavaScript library panel. Oh, that was and fun. that was the panel we had with uh, Phil Japixi mm-hmm. and Dan Waleen. And Justin Searles. Yeah. I figured to bring the guest back and have him listen to a comment from a listener of the yeah. very And then show. try to defend himself. <laughs> uh, this is a pretty good comment. This is from Sergey Barsky, yeah. who says, uh, hey, good talk. One thing that jumped at me is the comment that Angular is used for scenarios where it should not be. Hmm. Which is true. We were talking about, I don't think we were talking about Angular per se, but spas, right? right? That right. There are times when spas don't make sense. But mm. let me read what Sergey says. Uh, the question is, what's the alternative? Traditional web apps with postbacks? That's <laughs> never an alternative. Not going to happen. Don't do that. Uh, who wants to use an app like that these days? In a recent project, we started with a, quote, traditional ASP.NET MVC architecture. Once the project was over, after about a year, I felt sorry we did not go the Angular route. Uh, the reason is that slowly but surely, screen after screen, the app was migrated to a post-back free model. At the end, it was 80% single-page application. Ha. Huh. The main driver behind the change was that our sponsor's input was based on the user experience. I think the SPA approach always wins over post-back from the end-user perspective, and that the user opinion is the only thing that counts in the end. So problems and all, in my humble opinion, I am H-O, SPA should be the default approach to new web apps, and Angular indeed shines in those scenarios, keeping the JavaScript code well-organized and providing all key components for building the app. Well, what do you think about this, Justin? Because I'm, I'm thinking not every app lends itself to staying on one page all the time, that going page to page is fine. You don't have to post back. There's other ways to go about it. I think that it's uh, dangerous to make the assumption that so even if we were to accept the premise right. that a, a single-page app with a really well-crafted JavaScript interface is always superior from a user perspective, even if that were true, right. I think that the commenter might fail to acknowledge that a JavaScript user interface application is always more complex in sort of the overall girth of the application sure. than just building a traditional HTML document-based application. Because when I make an HTML document-based application, what I'm really giving the browser is a specification for how I want my user interface to be. Yeah, right. I give it a form element. The user agent's job is to render the form and make it actually you know, functional. But if I uh, you know, am building a, a single-page JavaScript application, 
that's my job. I'm not just passing a specification to my UI. I'm actually doing a lot of UI programming. Right. Plus, there's a fair bit of overhead to a spa. I mean, you're loading a mm-hmm. fair bit of stuff. So I don't know how well that works on the mobile side of things. <sighs> I don't know. I, 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 hear so, I hear so many arguments about people saying, well, there's, you know, hundreds of kilobytes of JavaScript that you're downloading. But then once you minify and you gzip it, it's not so bad. And right. then you have mm-hmm. one 500 kilobyte image of your face. That right blows out it. all right. the JavaScript yeah, completely. Well, and, and in this day of LTE and fairly high-performance multi-core uh, phones, yeah. it's just not that big of a deal. Right. Unless Sorry. you're using the Wi-Fi at a La Quinta Inn. <laughs> <laughs> Who would do that? And that would be bad. Uh, Sergey, we may not entirely agree with you, but uh, we appreciate your comment one way or the other. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows 8, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS, and Android. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd like to build you an app? Just go to diatomenterprises.com. And before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs, industry experts, and .NET Rocks guests. Uh, they release still over 40 new courses every month and still offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. With a wide range of developer topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, including lots and lots and lots of JavaScript stuff, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let us bring back to the show, for the second time, Justin Searles. Justin has two professional passions, writing great software and sharing what he's learned in order to help others write even greater software. He has a software studio in Columbus called Test Double, where he is currently helping clients build well-crafted user experiences for the web. Welcome back, Justin. Justin Searles, give him a round of applause. Yeah, so we were talking in the car on the way over here about how uh, JavaScript is sort of infiltrating in the enterprise, and uh, with that comes requirements uh, on the enterprise for code that um, JavaScript seems ill-prepared Ill for. Maybe, uh, and not maybe as a language, but maybe a developer seemed ill-prepared. You know... Um it's, we could probably spend the whole show just talking about the organizational pressures that go into how developers work in practice. You know, sure. if you, Deming had a quote that went something like, if you give a manager a numerical metric, he'll bring the business down to meet it, right? Like he'll meet it, but he'll destroy the entire company. Even if he has to wreck the whole right. company. Even if he has to bring, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So, so one of the things that I, as a developer, am always looking out for, especially because I'm an organizational coach now, is, uh, organizations that place too many controls over how developers do their jobs, right? Like I was at a, um, uh, I had a client several years ago where they had a very, very top-down hierarchical command and control, uh, rigid structure, human structure in place over how all of their enterprise Java applications were written. Okay. And so like if I wanted to use a new, uh, like a test dependency, like a new, like a jar, like a mocking library, I wanted to use an, uh, if you're familiar with Java, I wanted to use Makito instead of EasyMock as my mocking library. Well, that had to go in front of a committee of elders, right? Uh, that met every other Tuesday. Yeah. And they, uh, you know, I couldn't go and represent myself because I was a contractor. So somebody had to kind of, you know. Be your advocate. Right, right. As if the elders know. Right, right? of course. They don't yeah. know. Basically, they're, it's all uh, 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 change control, right? They want yeah. to try to minimize well, change. Sure. And, and, and in their defense, it's like 
fewer libraries better, right? They, they do want to manage that stuff. They want to have some sense that this code's going to be maintainable in the long term. That Java code hangs around a long time. It's true, but uh, of course, if your default is to uh, snuff out any new ideas, then it's really difficult to innovate right. and keep people excited. Right, yeah. And so uh, I, we'd gotten so used to getting beaten down over each and every dependency being told we couldn't do it. Somebody literally took like uh, one of Google's uh, libraries about um, collections and just copied and pasted all the code into the into the client project. And that was fine. That was fine because it wasn't a jar dependency, right? <laughs> so when I wanted to use a particular jQuery plugin to kind of just like make a, add a little bit of dynamism to this traditional post-back website, this is four or five years ago. Right. Uh, uh, I, I, of course, just defaulted to asking permission. They said, oh, JavaScript, we don't care about that. And I <laughs> realized I had this whole avenue through which to be as creative as I wanted to be. Right. So me and a buddy, uh, you know, we decided we're just going to rewrite this whole application in JavaScript. And we more or less just told the rest of the team, don't worry, we got this. You guys can just have all the fun Whoa. you want with your DAOs and your server-side stuff. Just give us JSON. And we kind of uh, skunks workedly, subversively rewrote the application as a single-page app. Wow. And Four years ago, that was not easy to do. Yeah, well, the client was thrilled. We were using stuff like SammyJS at the time. Sure. Uh, and then we did a little bit of knockout, um, and the client was thrilled because they'd never seen somebody deliver something so quickly. And then right as we were about to hand it off at the end, they're like, oh, my God, this is 80% JavaScript. Yeah. And uh, uh, hmm. it, was a, it was a direct consequence of the way that they tried to control and mitigate risk. So are, are enterprises catching on? You mean, do they now have sufficient controls in place to prevent developers from working creatively in yeah, JavaScript? I mean, I mean are, they, are they realizing that this is a legitimate development platform that carries with it significant, all, you know, all the risks that uh, go along with implementing dependencies on the server side? You know, I think that, the, the, well, they certainly are for no other reason than JavaScript gets so much attention and so much tooling now sure. is, is wired into it. What I think a lot of organizations continue to underestimate is um, the inefficiency that exists when JavaScript is a second-class citizen of server-side projects, right? right? So if I'm building like a... Uh, everyone in the room, please excuse me because I'm, an, I'm a .NET outsider. I'm a bit of an imposter here, so I don't... If I misuse a, uh, a Microsoft technology for the sake of example, please forgive me. But if I'm an ASP.NET developer and I've got an ASP.NET project, I imagine that there's some subdirectory under that where my JavaScript goes. Yep. Yeah, if I'm sure. using TFS uh, or a, a Microsoft build tool, most of those are going to be concerned about the, uh, not just compiling, but uh, maintaining the quality and, and, and gathering metrics about my server-side code sure. and not my client-side code. So even if the organization recognizes that uh, JavaScript is really important, the tools probably don't reflect that reality. And so that's well, we, I mean, you always have a folder somewhere on the server where all the JavaScript files for the client live, too. Right. But they're not actually utilized directly on the server side, so you don't think about them near as much. Yeah. Well, and that explains a lot of why they say, ah, we don't care about that, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they'll care about it if uh, the JavaScript is hitting the server, you know, 60 times, uh, you know, or 1,000 times a second from multiple well and you know there are some organizations they care more about the uh, cost of input and the complexity of what gets developed and some organizations that are maybe run a little bit leaner uh, usually care more about data that they gather while they're in production right and so to your example a company that gathers data while they're in production to make decisions about how the development process is going would totally pick up on the fact that JavaScript is dominating their application yeah. sure. but uh, an organization that 
really just worries about code coverage and static analysis and sort of all these kind of complexity of input tools, yeah. they could be completely blindsided by the amount of JavaScript that gets written if their tooling doesn't acknowledge it. Yeah, you don't think about people doing analysis on web pages, because that's what you're really talking about, right? right? We just, a web page is a web page, off it goes, don't worry about it. Are we, You know, I, I'm thinking back to your, your initial story here about the guys with, with Java, and my reaction is, obviously somebody very senior there with some scars, mm, yeah. you know? They've had an, an, an event where jar files burnt them, yes. and so they were controlling them very tightly. Yes, and, and there's a, uh, I, I talk about this a lot. So as a, as a person who uh, co-owns a 10-person studio, a lot of times like our value proposition is that we can be really nimble and move quickly and right. move more quickly than your you know, 50-person organization. And it's not because smaller is better, although smaller is often faster. It's, it's a, a lot of, I think, just how humans react to bad situations. Yep. You can go one of two ways. You can say, wow, that sucked. And, and either then go through like an analysis of special cause versus common cause and acknowledge that sometimes shit happens. Yep. And, and just say, well, there's nothing we could probably do to prevent this. Or you could be the type of person who reactionarily says, never again. Yes. Let's figure out what happened right before this and make sure that never happens again. And this is why technology that is, exists to heal pain mm. ends up causing more pain. Right. I mean, you plug the holes so tightly that you end up creating bigger holes. But I right. mean, this is the way humans are, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you're, uh, you're, you're like this with kids. Parents yeah. are like this with kids. They vow they will never make the mistakes their parents made with them. <laughs> and in doing so, create all sorts of new reasons for their kids to go to therapy, right? I mean, this is the way people are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, um, I won't name who it was because I'm not sure he wants this to be part of the public face of his company. <laughs> but I was talking to a, another person who owns a studio and I was saying, I was, we were commenting about flat organizations with lots of autonomy. Like at Test Double, all the developers, once we hand over a client project to them, they maintain the client relationship. They just run with it and we just kind of check in every now and yeah, then. Right. We were talking about having very few policies. Like we don't have a time off policy per se. Like people take time when they want. And uh, a, a person replied to me very curtly and said, no, I have one policy at my company. And I was like, oh, really? What's that? Because it sounded like it must be a serious thing. And he said, that policy is that if something bad happens and you make me create a policy, <laughs> then you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> and then we remove the new policy. <laughs> so they're always operating at one policy. Yeah, I like that. No policy. So That's the rule. So in uh, in the enterprise, when we have JavaScript, we're we're beginning to get testing frameworks around JavaScript going. And what about uh, the rest of it? You know, what about all of the other things that that we do in, say, you know, C sharp code or Ruby code or Python code or wherever it is that that JavaScript just seems to be an afterthought? You know, are we where are we in the state of uh, software development in the enterprise? Boy, you know. Um it's almost like you'd want to break that down into just identifying uh, what are you doing using JavaScript for, right? Yeah. Because uh, on the Windows platform, you can actually use JavaScript for more things than most other, yeah, you know, stacks at this point with WinJS and uh, you know whether you're targeting phones or uh, the RT environment or just Windows 8 and Metro. Yeah, heck, Node now too. Node Am I allowed to say Metro? Yeah, sure. We okay. don't work for Microsoft, so we can right. say it. <laughs> it's actually a good name. 
Yeah. I think it's a good name. I, th- I think they should have just bought that grocery store chain and sold services from it. That's what we think. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're keeping the name and we own the grocery store chain too. <laughs> um, but yeah, with Node 2, in fact, uh, one of my friends, uh, Jay Harris, uh, up in Michigan, he's, uh, using our open source tool Lineman, which we talked about, what yeah. is it now, 26 episodes ago. Yeah. 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 He's, uh, deploying his Lineman application to Azure. Mm-hmm. So, so Lyman and Grunt are building his application, putting it into Azure. It's all static assets. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's so many different types of uh, JavaScript applications. I think it's probably most important just to break down um, what type of application are you talking about and whether or not um, uh, the language that you're spending most of your time writing is the one that's also doing the building. Mm. Right. So for example, like if I'm doing a Node application or if I'm doing a fat client web application... When I say fat client web application, by the way, I mean single page apps. I yeah. think that yeah. around around here we, we I've noticed in the .NET community people use the 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 the, the spa spa acronym, right? right? Yeah. For me, a spa is a place that I go to, you know, get a shiatsu massage. Nice. Yes, yes. Uh, I say fat client JavaScript app a lot. Um, I'm I'm I'd like for people to say like first class, you know, web right. application. Yeah, sure. Um, but in those. I really think that the best way to ensure that your tooling is good is going to be that the uh, the application that you're writing, uh, whatever language it is, that the tools are written in that language too. So for example, when I do a fat client web application, our tool Lineman is all based on Grunt. It runs on Node. Mm. I've got a lot of problems with Node, but one thing that I like about Node is that it's all JavaScript. Right. So if I want to um, run JavaScript tests of my JavaScript code, I've got a JavaScript-based you know, Grunt plugin plus Jasmine to, to write those tests and run those tests. And you and prefer that. Because I've oh, met yeah, lots absolutely. of folks, especially uh, around Ruby, that like Ruby is the test language, but the programming is something else. Mm. Well, it depends if you're talking about unit testing or uh, integration testing, right. I guess. So for unit testing, I think that it's important to really have, uh, you know, obviously you, you, need, you need to have uh, tight control over being able to see and interact with whatever object model is under test, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and if you're in a different language, you might be in a different process or at That's least right. a different thread. And so you yeah. wouldn't have that same level of isolation. And it might not understand the whole scope of your your thing, your types and stuff. But if you really want to blow a weekend with me, um, <laughs> uh, talk to me about the state of uh, integration testing, specifically in Node, right. um, which I think is unfortunately a mess. So I've got a, a client right now who's doing uh, uh, Jasmine plus all of the Jasmine extensions that I, that, that I publish. Um, for their uh, unit tests, and they're trying to bring that out for all of their integration tests too, but what's been painful is that Node.js, because it's an extremely opinionated uh, 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 library, doesn't offer any way to synchronously make HTTP calls, like from from a user perspective. Like huh. If I'm a user wanting to make an HTTP call, I can't, there's no way with Node that I can say, HTTP get something, and then synchronously wait for it to to return back. I have to program that asynchronously, whether I'm using promises or callbacks. That's fine and good and a really great idea for production code, but for test code where, like, for example, you're trying to use Selenium WebDriver and that API is all HTTP, it means every time you want to touch that API, you've got another callback. Mm. So you end up in this nested callback hell, like 15 layers deep. Mm-hmm. And as a result, their tests are really challenging to write, and there's a lot of weird state and lexical scope issues and stuff, and it's just a pain. So, so to that point, we're still using Ruby RSpec with Capybara right. to wrangle WebDriver. Um, I'm just now this week found a cool library called WebDriver Sync, and I'm working with a, a fellow named Joshua to to try to get that. 
under under control and and ready for sort of production use and what it does is it's actually hitting the selenium jar directly so it can't so it's not making http requests which is a pretty roundabout solution to a kind of bizarre problem <laughs> are you guys using version control with javascript oh yeah absolutely yeah. um so i mean um uh i hit 100 github repos <laughs> recently yeah. and and shamefully most of those start with uh uh something jasmine dash or something javascript dash uh, uh, so on and so forth, because we write so many little micro libraries. Right. In fact, um, in npm, the the node packaging um, manager, and it's not, I guess, technically an acronym, but that's what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Git and GitHub are sort of just first class, and right. so so I, it actually warns you if there's not a repository linked back to the uh, t to any given package. So I think that's pretty much taken for granted at this point in most of the JavaScript communities. Absolutely. And obviously, getting stuff to the source is one thing, but also this idea of just trying to manage the proliferation of mm -hmm. JavaScript libraries. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm trying to imagine the committee of elders. Right. And you're coming with these tribes, as we've started to call right. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Groups of JavaScript libraries that you think work together saying, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to go down the, the Angular tribe. You know what's funny is that in in environments with lots and lots of control, I think that developers are generally creative people, mm -hmm. and we're here because we're passionate about building great stuff. Mm. And when you're in an environment where somebody controls you or tries to impose a lot of control over you and exert influence on you in one area, it, it we sort of we 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 might uh, overreact or backlash against that by right. by taking even more liberty over here where you're not controlling me. <laughs> right. And so like you guys did. Right. Well, like you're not controlling the JavaScript libraries? Wow. Yeah. You're yeah. about to get an introduction. Yeah, screw you, man. We're going to just <laughs> right. dump on you and 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 the the wild wild west aspect of JavaScript can be really um appealing. Right. And and in fact people might go further uh, and and be less rigorous in their JavaScript. That, so to our point in the car this morning, I think the reason why so much enterprise JavaScript is so uh, loony and, and crazy and unstructured and mm -hmm. messy is because it's maybe the only place where a developer feels like he's allowed to make a mess. Like in, <laughs> in environments where uh, I've seen people have like 95% plus code coverage requirements for all the testing, it's not a shock that like a lot of times the developers are actually resistant to JavaScript testing because like that was their one place where they got to write code speculatively without tests first. Right. And I was taking that away from them. Right. Yeah, so it's yeah. sort of a freedom and liberty versus so, control issue. So do you, what do you think? Do you think that we should let them write code without tests first or should we, uh, impose the same standards on JavaScript developers that uh, the rest of us have. So I, I think that we should acknowledge uh, uh, that sort of paradox and that balance, and then um, whatever it is that we do, whatever we value, do it consistently. And that way, if we're imposing so much control that people aren't having a good time and aren't feeling productive, we can dial back the control overall, as opposed to having you know this weird... A uh, perverse incentive for people to just sort of, you know, instead of making the best decision for the application, just hack and code where they want to be hacking code, right? right? Yeah. I, yeah. I suppose if you give them an incentive to to go off the rails, mm -hmm. you're you're creating more problems, right? Yeah. And the hippy dippy types like me will go do that, and the people who really like the structure and the formality will, you know, go on the other side and, and can actually create a lot of tension really, in teams. Yeah. And then what kind of code are you really going to end up with, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It's not that easy to test JavaScript code. Yeah, it's not easy enough, that's for sure. Um, uh, in general, it's a, it's been a tooling problem up until now. Yeah, um, do you have some favorites? So if um, 
what I will say is that the, that the three, the three dominant testing libraries for JavaScript are probably QUnit, which is a traditional XUnit library. So if you're familiar with NUnit, um, where you have, you know, uh, a, a one-dimensional series of, of, of tests of an object, test methods, where in each test method you do the arrange and the act and the assert. Uh, QUnit is a, a pretty easy to adopt, easy to, easy to get started with library. I know it, it rose to popularity because John Rezig adopted it for the jQuery project. So QUnit's been around for a while. I know um, Ember.js also uses QUnit for its, for its test suite. Mm -hmm. um, for people coming from uh, Ruby, or any, or, or have experience with any of the RSpec-like, uh, I, I would call them nested example group test libraries, like um, in, in uh, .NET land, I think it's called SpecFlow. Yeah, right, sure. Um, uh, I don't even know what it, whether Java has some kind of equivalent. Um, there's Scala spec. If you're coming from an RSpec derivative uh, or from or, or comfortable with adopting one, uh, uh, Jasmine and Mocha are probably the two other largest JavaScript testing libraries. Mocha is nice because uh, it's got a great uh, Node.js testing story. It's built to be um, uh, extendable. Uh, the I'm trying to think if I have any real problem with Mocha. I don't think I have any real problem with Mocha. It seems like a lot mm. of people enjoy it. A lot of people have fun with it. The only, I guess, I guess if I have one thing to complain about Mocha is that because it's extendable, um, because it's extendable, like people tend to pull in their own expectation and their own assert libraries, like Chai as promised or uh, Chai or uh, uh, a traditional JavaScript assert. Uh, so, so there's more variability usually in test suites in terms of how people are asserting. Um, but real, oh, and most people for, for mocking and stubbing pull in some other thing to handle mocking and stubbing for right. them, like sign on that JS. Um, but frankly, like I'm biased because I got to the JavaScript testing scene before Mocha was around. And so I use Jasmine, which is by Pivotal Labs. Um, uh, Jasmine's great. It's just a little too simple for me. Um, uh, it's, it comes with its own spy, which is a type of a test double, a type sure. of a fake. Um, uh, I've expanded the, the, the spying stuff with a thing I call Jasmine Stealth that adds a little bit more nuance hmm. to the stubbing and spying and mocking story. Um, and did you say chai before? Chai. Yeah. Chai. What's chai? Like, uh, chai tea? Like tea. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Mocha and Chai are supposed to kind of get gotcha. along. Yeah. Uh, oh man, now we're getting into the naming games, right? Of course. Um, hey, don't get me started. Uh, but Jasmine overall is really great. I I I got addicted at one point though. So if you're familiar with the RSpec or the SpecFlow uh, domain-specific language, you'll see a lot of describe and context and before each and it and after each. And there's this whole lexicon of uh. Uh, names and, and verbs that you have to understand in order to be productive. Right. But um, a, a lot of that, especially RSpec also has one called let, which lets you kind of uh, uh, instantiate or declare a variable and, and tell it how to set it up. Hey, it's like COBOL. Yeah, yeah a little bit. <laughs> well, a uh, really smart guy, Jim Wire from the Ruby community, acknowledged that, you know, really what we're all aping at in all of these different test DSLs is the simple, like the simplest way we can put this in English is just given, when, and then. And so why not just have a testing language that's given when and then? Like simple little like single action one-liners that we can construct and then nest uh, and cascade through these RSpec 
uh, style, like nested example group structures. And so he wrote a library called RSpec given that gives you a really tremendously powerful way to specify all that. And I've ported that to Jasmine and I call it Jasmine given. No, oh, nice. Um, and so that's, I, I write all my tests in CoffeeScript so I can get really, really terse, you know, minimal, but, um, uh, very expressive tests. And because, uh, it just says given when and then for a reader, it's, it's, I'm not not to get all you know uh, cucumbery on people, okay. but for for a reader at least my intent is really clear because my tests tend to be really consistent looking right, to read. Right, you can uh, read them. Yeah, whereas it can be very confusing what somebody's intent is when they just see a whole flurry of nested before eaches and and its that some are one line and some are ten lines and so forth. Sure. Yeah. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. <laughs> That's right. It's time to invent a new caffeinated beverage so I can name my brand new JavaScript library after <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is, let me tell you that Kendo UI from Telerik is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps and it comes with server-side wrappers for ASP.NET MVC, so you'll be able to produce awesome HTML5 apps powered by Kendo UI without being forced to write that pesky JavaScript. Simply program on the server, and the Kendo UI wrappers handle all the HTML and JavaScript. You'll have fun, and your boss will be amazed. Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com slash .net, that's D-O-T-N-E-T, to find out more about Kendo UI and download the free 30-day trial with full support. And don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks. Awesome. Who's our winner, dude? Today's winner is Zeph Levin. Congratulations, Zeph. Give Zeph a big round of applause. Zeph just won a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. That's just about everything Telerik does in one box. It's a $2,000 value. We give one of those away in every show. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And did you know, every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member yes. of the .NET Rocks fan club. We've done it for two years now. Last year, we just gave away uh, uh, $5,000 worth of stuff to Andy Smith mm -hmm. from Wales. A tablet development system, including a laptop. That's right. All the gear he needed and a few tablets to make it happen. That's right, and he got all the software free. And uh, we like to ask our guests. I was going to say, your interviewees get to pick what stuff the winner gets, right? No, no the winner gets to pick their own stuff. Oh, they good. basically create a shopping list for us and say, this is what I want. We usually help them with it, too. Yeah. We but we always them. ask the guests what they would do with $5,000 because it gets ideas. Right. So, you know, you're a JavaScript guy. You don't spend money on anything. Yeah, so being a JavaScript guy... <laughs> So, so my current rig, is this, is this me getting asked the $5,000 yeah, question? Yeah, yeah, what would you buy? So my current rig is I use an 11-inch MacBook Air intentionally yeah. with 8 gigs of RAM, and the SSD is so fast that I'm not at all constrained. Right. Um, uh, so, so the last thing I need is more horsepower, but if I had to spend it, so, you have to. Yeah, so I had a meeting with our accountant last week, and he told us that, that this is the year for us to spend any business expenses that we can before, before the December end of the year. 31st. There so, so he's agreed to buy some advertising on .NET Rocks. Clearly. Yeah, so that's what Carl's proposal was. <laughs> I don't know if that I'm going to bite, but um, uh, I'm, I've been trying to convince my partner that it would be a 
a wise use of money to to buy one of the brand new Mac Pros. Yeah, Mac if, Pro 15 inch with the Retina display. Yeah, if 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 mm-hmm. the Mac Pro comes out in time for the end of the year, I would love to pull the trigger, but I just cannot justify spending three thousand dollars on a computer. That's yeah. my current one is already faster than what I need. Because you could buy six Mac Minis for that. Right, thing. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I could give them to people who needed them. Yeah. So now if I, you know what, now if I go ahead and buy it, yeah. I'm going to feel like such an asshole. But you've only spent $3,000. You still got two grand to go. Yeah, that's true. Well, I guess I could upgrade from 256 gigabytes of storage to 512, and then I'm sure that there would, that would probably ter- clear it. Probably a terabyte. Yeah, right. Yeah, you want a couple 512s. Yeah. Supposedly, it's not hard to get one of those little tiny black trash cans up to 10 grand uh, through the oh, custom yeah, options. Oh, that, yeah. That, well, that's the full Mac Pro. Right. Not, yeah, not the, the full MacBook Pro, but the Mac Pro. No, yeah, the Mac, Mac Pro. Pro. Yeah, I'm talking about the, oh, yeah. the, the yeah, small little paper shredder. Yeah, the tra- it looks like a trash can. It yeah. really does. A trash can that gets really hot. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's admirable. There yeah. you go. That's, that's <laughs> More stuff. Apple hardware for Justin. That's the solution. That's the only thing JavaScript developers spend money on is Apple hardware. <laughs> Apple hardware. Yeah. Well, and skinny jeans. <laughs> <laughs> and lattes. All right. I'm just thinking through, if I really want to take JavaScript seriously in the enterprise, it has to be a first-class citizen. So what else? Testing is obviously a piece of it. Testing is critical because it's a dynamic language. Mm-hmm. We don't have the compiler to tell us we have type issues unless we're using TypeScript. What do you, have you looked at TypeScript at all? What do you um, think of so having types over JavaScript? I don't think that, that TypeScript is really taking off at all outside of the .NET community. Um, I've heard uh, some people talk about it though. And I guess what I would say is that, well, it doesn't really exist yet outside the .NET community. There's a grunt plugin for it though. Okay. Oh, really? So, so for example, so R2 alignment is like a, 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 so, so just to back up for people who aren't familiar with this whole node ecosystem of tooling, um, uh, grunt is a Node.js tool, build tool, similar to make or, or rake, uh, that, that lets you define custom tasks and configure those to do whatever you want during your build with files. Um, uh, Lineman, which is a tool that rewrote, kind of just adds an awareness of what is a project, like what is an application. So your app code goes here. When you say build, your build goes here mm-hmm. and just codifies a handful of assumptions. Doesn't do a whole lot more than that, but makes it really, really easy if you want to add something else to your kind of your build uh, life cycle. You can just kind of tack something on at, at an, an arbitrary point in your build. So, so for example, if I wanted to add TypeScript, I just npm install grunt dash TypeScript, do three or four lines of configuration, and then it would be compiling all of my TypeScript files into JavaScript and including them in my application. Right. So it's something like people have actually done. We've got a blog post on how to include TypeScript on Lineman. Um, so that's certainly one approach. I think I generally agree with you though. I think that unit testing, um, Probably all layers of testing, but especially unit testing is much more valuable with dynamic languages Absolutely. than statically typed. Well, ones. I think it's one of the reasons that dynamic languages actually took off this time right. around. Mm, yeah. We've made a few attempts at them over the years, mm. but you always get into that write once, read never yeah, state of code, yeah. right? Pearl. Just, I it, mean, yeah, I, it works. You just don't know why, yeah. and, you, and you can't fix it if it doesn't work. Yeah, write only languages, but you know, and then we had things like the variant in Visual Basic in the early days, mm. which was you know great for people who didn't care about types or wanted to roll the dice, but, you know, horrible in terms of uh, unexpected errors down the road. And we had no testing tools back then. Yeah, you thought you were subtracting two numbers, but there were two strings. Oh, sure. Yeah, that kind of fun stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, I... uh I write a lot of tests. Like I, like I said, I got a lot of testing libraries out there and I like to practice test-driven development JavaScript. But I think that uh, balancing out the fact that it's a dynamic language and it's 
that feedback is very necessary to get confidence that what you're building sure. works. Uh, fact of the matter is that 95% of JavaScript that gets written in the universe is probably written to run on web pages. Yeah. Right. And it's probably written to help drive user interface stuff. Yeah. Right. And so if you're talking about feedback as to whether something works or not, Command R or F5 is going to be as fast a feedback or faster than, than, than writing a test, running a test for most people. Yeah. Well, I also like the big thing I'm seeing in enterprise these days is client side instrumentation. That if mm. there is an error, I want it reported all the way back up the chain. But mm -hmm. I think it's tough for, that's not a big deal to do in a WPF app. Right. Or a Silverlight app, but doing it in JavaScript? Also, there's problems in JavaScript that don't, may I'm not nodding. have things to do with JavaScript. Like, you know, mm. what happens if, Google Chrome crashes, right? And your your uh, F12 window is gone, and your logging is gone, and all of that stuff. So now you have to set up some external log, you know, either through Signal R or something like that. But you only get the last successful thing that you see. You really don't have, you know. I guess you have a crash dump file that you can look at, and like I, I had, I diagnosed a memory leak that way, and mm. the only way I found out it was a memory leak is just by actually opening up the performance. You know, uh, task manager and looking and seeing, oh yeah, I can see that memory That's, leak happening. So, so there's all these companies out there that specialize in server side profiling, like New Relic. Right. And they do a great job. And they, they do such a great job that, you know, we're talking earlier about these two types of organizations, organizations that try to control quality by analyzing what gets created and others that try to, uh, I guess validate quality by analyzing what's already out there, what's happening in production sure. and operationally. Of the folks who get their confidence in their code from operations, you know, they love tools like New Relic because they get a yeah. heat map of where, where the, where, where their bottlenecks are. Yeah. I've talked to people at very large, prominent, you know, Silicon Valley companies who do a lot of really cool web app stuff. Their engineers, because their culture is around analyzing operational statistics, they're afraid of jumping in uh, feet first with with fat client JavaScript web development because they feel like the same that that piece of information that they use to get their feedback to drive their productivity every day yeah. is a black hole because once they get to client side JavaScript they don't get any of that feedback right. anymore. Well, that's think, what they used to that's drive. That's where a optimize. new relic comes into play because new relic the will instrument JavaScript um, preemptive analytics the yeah. the full edition there mm. too has a JavaScript piece. So it's actually, if when you know, how many times do people, people don't even realize errors are occurring in JavaScript right, in the browser. Right. By default, they're suppressed. Unless you have your console window open. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. but, and I'm talking about in production, regular mortals, like you don't want to pop it up in front of them. It just scares them. Yes. But you do want to know it's happening. And the nature of JavaScript apps is to just gloss over when errors happen and not, not throw up dialog boxes. And, you know, you hit it, Carl. That's why we don't take JavaScript seriously. It's because since day one, no we've just soaked up the error and kept going. Yeah. Put in a, put in a tag that's not legal, ignore it. And all of that, that m mindset, error, there is no error handling. We your just app, ignore it and keep might going. stop and come unresponsive. And that was about but, the web generally, right? Like, right. I mean, that's the reason why browsers are so forgiving of terrible, sure. invalid markup. Because, Especially IE. Yeah, right. We had to expect that people producing websites weren't going to do it, you know, Right. In a compliant way. Yep. Uh, same way with writing the JavaScript. I think that the the other side of this whole tools equation with analyzing whether your JavaScript's working is, and Richard, you kind of glanced at this point, is if you have a uh, Chrome Web Inspector or 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 Safari Web Inspector or the developer tools in Internet Explorer, as a developer, you have great access now at timeline and profiling and resources and what's yep. actually happening. But 
you'd kill to get that same level of of data and information at the same kind of you know depth of uh, 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 both detail as well as clarity of what's really happening in mm -hmm. aggregate with your real users in yeah. production. And just the nature of the JavaScript language and the nature of the um, uh, performance APIs that, that that browsers like Chrome expose to you yeah. is such that you can only profile so much. You can only get glean so much useful information right. from that in aggregate. Um, and that's that impedance mismatch has been frustrating, I think, to me, because it's easy to know that it works on my machine. Right. And your version, your browser. Right. I think that's a big one. Is We have it tested on every version of every browser. Like, it's almost impossible to do. Yeah. So you've got a group of people who are having failures. Do you know what browser they're actually on? And that's where I think the client-side instrumentation is so important. Yeah, absolutely. So do you develop on the server side as well? Or are you... Uh, no, absolutely I do. A... Um, uh, I mean, it's my focus for the last few years has been let's make front-end web development as delightful as possible for people because it seems like people are really hurting and hating JavaScript. And I think it was more of a tool problem and a culture problem than a language problem. Although okay. JavaScript is a terrible language. I grant that to anyone. Yeah. It was developed in 10 days. Doug, Doug Crawford yeah. figured that out a long yeah. time ago. But, uh, you know, it's not going anywhere either. It's the lingua right. franca, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Um, I personally like CoffeeScript a lot because I think it's beautiful and it smooths out a lot of the rough edges. And, you know, a lot of the cross-browser problems are because uh, the JavaScript people write are wouldn't pass JS Lint, you know, right. so they have all sorts of kind of like little gotchas uh, manifest. But CoffeeScript, if it compiles, it passes JS Lint, so it's much more cross-browser friendly. Um, focus has been elsewhere, but... Um, you know, I came from Enterprise Java, and in fact, that one project I told you about earlier was a bit of a pivot point for me. Um, I, I I would say that I'm a Rubyist, and I kind of I if I identify with one community, it's probably the the Ruby and the Rails community. I sure. hang out with them the most and enjoy their conference circuit and friends with a lot of those guys. Um, so we do a lot of Ruby and Rails work, um, but for the server side, for the server side, what about Node. Are you a Node guy? So, so Lineman, this tool that I was discussing that we've built, is all Node. It's all Node. But it's really cutting a, against the grain. This is not mm -hmm. the type of application. Like, build tools and test tools are furthest from the minds of Node core team, which yeah, is right. why we keep on running into so many harebrained. So I'm cursing at it most of the time. <laughs> uh, I did my first, uh, my current client project has got a Node app in production, though, and it's insanely fast. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is a rewrite of a current application, and it is an order of magnitude faster than their existing application. Sure. And I have to credit, I mean, it's, it's as much as I love to, to, to pick at and tease things I don't like about Node, the fact that it's so performant for the specific purposes that people are using it for, right. uh, that it defaults to non-blocking I.O., maybe that's the only special sauce. Maybe the optimizations local to each you know, distribution that Google has invested into V8, maybe that's the special sauce. I'm not really sure, mm. but um, I love it for its performance, I guess. Um, so yeah. a lot of Ruby, a lot of Node, but frankly... If you're building really great fat client uh, user interfaces in JavaScript, mm -hmm. that's going to be 80, like in uh, the reader comment in the beginning. Sure. That's going to be 80% of the heft of your application. Yeah, the rest is just service calls in the back. If everything else is just JSON API, boring CRUD stuff, yep. that's mm -hmm. going to be such a small part of your time that sure. it just doesn't matter and that it's much. Just, and it's kind of amazing that we've gotten there all of a sudden. That yeah, for sure. Browsers can really render real UIs. Yeah. Oh, and mobile pushed us to that, right? Yeah, even more so. Does anybody in the audience have a question for Justin? Raise your hand. Mm -hmm. So the question question from the audience is: uh, the companies using Durandal and uh, Knockout. Knockout and thinking of using uh, getting into spas, but 
maybe making these mini spas because they have SEO restrictions that prevent them from uh, messing with their URLs. So do you see companies in this particular spot making small spa apps? Oh, absolutely. Tons of people are going with kind of hybrid applications, and I think it's totally normal. So so there's really kind of two aspects to that question. First, is it okay or is it is it normal to be doing like little tiny what I might call like modules within a page that are right. very interactive and delightful from a user's experience without mm. necessarily taking over the entire application flow? Yeah. Of course, lots of people do it. And in fact, if I was a developer who was uh, new to fat client, rich client uh, JavaScript development, I'd start there anyway because it's that's enough of a learning curve, right? Sure. Um, whether you're using, you know, uh, Backbone or Knockout or Angular to kind of, you know, kind of corral the JavaScript such that you're kind of operating at a level that's higher than just traditional jQuery event event driven spaghetti, right? Um, so I think that's great. The other angle, which is, uh, what do I do when I um, want to have that great user experience, but SEO matters a lot because maybe we're a content site or maybe we have a lot of pages and we have the Google and the Bing bot uh, hitting our site frequently. Um, that's still a mostly unsolved problem. We actually talked about this a little bit uh, in our panel at Sophia. Right, yeah, we did. Um, that there are a handful of web services out there to try to solve that problem for you such that you could proxy any web traffic that you get from a known bot to go to that site. And then we talked about PhantomJS earlier. Uh, uh, it'll run the site through PhantomJS and then give the markup, the HTML, after all the JavaScript has had a chance to initialize and run and, and paint the page. It'll give that markup to the bot so that it'll be kind of a pre-rendered uh, uh, version of the page. And what's nice about that kind of approach, you could also, of course, host your own farm of PhantomJS uh, 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 clients just ready to accept uh, Google and Bing bot requests. It's a little hacky. There's a, there's a handful of specifically Node, because there's so much activity in Node right now, uh, libraries to kind of help facilitate this. It's a little hacky. It's a little weird. Um, uh, but it works really well from the perspective of Hey, at least this is disgusting, but at least I'm not coupling my application to it. Like if I was <laughs> writing a whole bunch of server side code to like specifically make my Angular stuff draw into the mm -hmm. page, right? Whenever my front end Angular stuff uh, change, there's always this risk that suddenly my pages are broken for search engines, and I'm not noticing it because I'm not a search engine, right? Bot. And, you're, right. And, and your old searches will be, you know, you'll find out months later when, right, when the exactly. SEO drains away. Exactly. It's not easy to know when you've mangled that. Yeah, you mm -hmm. want to talk about hard to write tests. Yeah, yeah. Hard, hard to know if you're actually findable. Yeah, so that, that's, uh, hopefully that's helpful, but that's my perspective. Rock on. Yeah, question here. What are your thoughts on the server and client-side frameworks like Meteor? Yeah, so I'm, you know, uh, uh, I want to always be careful, like, to come across like I'm bashing anything. Because now he's talking about frameworks that are that are both sides. Single code base, single language. Yeah. And uh, from one directory, you're writing, you know, um, code that runs in the server, uh, code that runs in the client, and then code that they is talk, shared by both. And they talk to each other. Right. Yeah. And and uh, they 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 are built and deployed together. And then yes, also there's there's back and forth actual like you know AJAX happening across yeah. the wire as well. Um, so I don't want to come across like I'm bashing anything because I, I love how much innovation is happening and there's a lot of right ways to build software. But one of my concerns, because I got excited with this at first when Node.js first hit the scene, I was thinking it would be really nice if we could just um, 
share certain things like validations are a, a canonical example. Like, you, you know, everyone wants to have good solid client side validation. So users get really quick, snappy feedback that some form field isn't valid. Um, uh, but then it's duplicative if I have to re-implement that validation logic first in the client and then also in the server and yeah. possibly in a different language. But, and you need to have it in the service too because the whole idea is to have APIs here that other people can call. Right. So they need to be valid. Right. But you don't want to wait for round trips every time. Yeah, somebody, somebody shouldn't be able to use a replay attack to just send whatever they ha- yeah. whatever they want to in your database. Sure. Um, so, so that conceit was compelling. Also the... Um, uh, now this is more hand wavy, but the promise that you know I'd get all this code reuse, right? right. Like, uh, I think if I w- learned one thing about code reuse over the years, it's that it sounds like a really laudable and great goal, but it's uh, almost always overrated, especially by management, because <laughs> because management views more code as riskier, um, as as costlier to create, costlier to maintain. Um, but I view reused code as riskier generally than having two separate things, two, two separate small things. I'd almost rather, always rather have two separate small things than one thing used in two places. Right. For two because it has purposes. two reasons to change, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, uh, if it changes in one place, now I've got to worry about its use in the second place as well. Right. You've created an, uh, a dependency that you right. didn't necessarily. So I love reuse when it emerges and when it's natural, but trying to force it or overemphasize it, especially when I'm like, just some guy, like if I'm building a tool or a framework recommending to other teams that they go and reuse a bunch of stuff or build stuff to be reusable, um, uh, that can push people in, I think, the wrong direction. Well, you're starting to build these versatile libraries. And every time I go and look at these library code, like it's terrifying. You have to deal with so many exception cases. It makes for very obfuscated code. But I hear people like in Meteor. I, I, I know a lot of people ha- having great experiences with Meteor JS. Yeah. Um, I've also heard some fun anecdotes of people going to conference presentations about Meteor and then, you know, figuring out how they can insert arbitrary records into databases and stuff via <laughs> just like their web inspector. So, I'm going to mess with your demo in real time. Which is generally a problem with lots of single page apps, right? That sure. uh, building it in to be uh, secure and acknowledging, you know, user roles can be right. a new challenge. One more question from the audience. How are people dealing with the transition from an object-oriented language to JavaScript, which isn't? It probably depends on how you're learning JavaScript, like what resources you're using. A lot of the traditional literature on JavaScript, like I'm thinking of uh, John Resig's book from, I think, 2006, Pro JavaScript. I think it was an A-Press book. (laughs) He spends about 100 pages giving you like five different totally valid ways to construct objects. Like if uh, uh, in a classical sense, like I want to, you know, have a constructor say new foo and uh, here's all these different schemes by which you can arrive at that conclusion. Uh, and then over the years, there's been all sorts of different memes of like the right way to create an object, all with an eye to this resembles classical object oriented programming and maybe is closer to our comfort zones. I think that over time, people have gotten more and more comfortable with a functional mindset, right? Where we, we, we value the separation of, uh, of state and behavior such that we don't have these big mutable state messes in our classes. And so at the time I was writing Ruby code, but I found that in the last several years, my Ruby code tends to look functional. Looks like it wishes it could be a functional language and that I have these behavioral classes, trees of behavioral classes that have no state. And then these structures of rich and complex uh, data types. But what's weird about JavaScript is you have that functional mm. aspect of it, but you also have global variables, which are these yeah. mutable variables that, yeah. 
well, most languages have global stuff that you can you can yeah. you can get Doesn't at mean if you, you want should. to, right? Um, but I think that the simplicity of job, JavaScript's um, provided built-in types in yeah. that you don't have a lot of them and they're not even that great yeah. um, uh, lends itself to composing those data types well. And uh, because it's a first-class functional language, being able to pass functions around all over yeah. the place means that it's really kind of up to you. And one of the things that I like about the Wild Wild West aspect of JavaScript and with Node is that there's so diverse a community of users out there that no one can look at you with, with a straight face and tell you this is the right way to do something. <laughs> like they can with traditional server-side stuff. Yeah, there's a lot more freedom. I, I, I don't feel like there's a right way to do any of that stuff. It's just, otherwise, we'd all be doing it that way. There's right. always choices. Yeah, well, I can tell you as somebody who started in, you know, in traditional object oriented programming and then got into JavaScript later, it wasn't that difficult for me to grok it. And I, I really delight now in the ability to pass functions around. And I, you know, it's very cool. I, I love it. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't miss it is what I'm saying. But yeah. I, I, um, almost. So basically, I think that uh, I'd use class-like structures as sort of a syntactic sugar for organizing behavior. Yeah. But if you look at the internals of any method, it's almost always, I use underscore JS a lot um, for, for giving me a lot of functional primitives like map reduce. Uh, if you look at the internal of any method, it's almost always logically a one-liner. It's a chain of underscore methods that might be eight things deep that kind of, yep. you know, transform and work with the data. Uh, and that duo... I guess of of lightweight objects that have you know functions, and then each of those functions be kind of like a functional chain mm -hmm. has really resulted in just delightful, easy to read code. And if anything, I've been backporting that to you know my server side, yeah, uh, uh, writing style. Well, uh, Justin, what's in your inbox? What's next for you, man? What's in my inbox? Like literally, what's Wait, in what, what's <laughs> on your to do list? Ah, oh, goodness. I actually, I just started a, a, a gist. So if you want to find me on GitHub, my, my, my GitHub name is my last name, Searles, S-E-A-R-L-S. And I just started a gist on GitHub the other day of like 20 checkboxes of open source stuff that I've been meaning to do and get around to. Ah, mm -hmm. uh, and so when, you know, the magic of you write a list, it, it immediately leaves your brain. Yep. So it's on there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the things I want to do is uh, I talked about Jasmine Given a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think Jasmine Given is a fantastic uh, credit to Jim for for coming up with the whole meme. But it's a it's a really great way to organize my tests. But it's a shame that it only works in Jasmine one dot x. It doesn't sure. work in Mocha. It doesn't work in in, in QUnit or Casper or any of these other kind of testing lives. Mm -hmm. So um, my my goal is to rewrite it and make it adaptable. Uh, and and be able to be used by any of the different testing libraries. Great. Uh, and that's going to take some good regression testing and some hard thinking and some you know work. Awesome. We'll have fun with that and have a have a happy holiday season. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm looking for... forward to the free Xbox One that you're uh, handing yeah, out. Okay. You're not going to win. That <laughs> Enjoy one. that. Okay. Justin Searles, ladies and gentlemen, give him a big round of applause. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks! Yeah. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, 
and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...